teachers. In chapter 2, you sort of see what the false teachers were teaching and what they were like, and that's sort of a, uh, of a contrast to our text in chapter 1. So it's like in 2 Peter 2, we have sort of the negative, and in 2 Peter 1, in our text, we have the, the positive. So 2 Peter 2 will be our scripture reading. Peter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. 
What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. Let's sing in response to this from hymn 48, 3 and 4. So our text this morning is from the first chapter of 2 Peter. And let's read together 2 Peter 1. We'll start reading verse 3. 3 and 4 are a separate sermon. This sermon will begin at verse 5. Our text begins in verse 5, 5 through 7. But we'll start reading verse 3 just to put these words into into context. 2 Peter 1, 3. His, that's our God and Savior, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. After the sermon, let's respond by singing from Psalm 116, 5 seven and nine. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are there any projects that you're busy with? Maybe you're busy building something, painting something, turning an old bus into the RV of your dreams. What are you invested in? And I'm not just thinking about your money, but, you know, your time, your energy, your heart. Aren't there times in life where you get passionate about something and you spare no expense? Here's this sermon in a nutshell, just one line. That should also be true with your walk with God. There's nothing wrong with restoring an old car. But our walk with God deserves even more time and attention. Christians are not passive pew warmers. To be a Christian is to be on a journey of the greatest transformation ever. We are being born again our whole life long. The Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians... 3.19 over the Ephesians, that they would grow up into all the fullness of God. This is completely lost today in our culture. I don't just mean that when people look at Christians, they do not see really what is going on in their lives, but even the very idea of personal 
change? People don't talk about it today. Our world has forgotten character formation. Yes, our culture has certain issues that it likes to fight, whether they're about human rights or about climate change. But our culture has no concept of people learning and growing in things like humility, patience, love. We live in a day and age where our pleasures are first and foremost. Not much different than those false teachers in chapter 2. Fulfilling your desires. That's the slogan of life. Getting what you want. Today it's especially challenging in two ways. No other age has raised and produced such consumers... And we're now, the, the store is, well, right in your hand, right in front of you. And no other age has developed a, an entertainment industry like ours. Billions of dollars put into eye candy. You can be self-centered and selfish in our day and age like no other. Past generations of Christians were much different I was listening to a sermon the other day online. Good sermon. The speaker was talking about the mortification of sin. And he mentioned, we have no concept of this today anymore. You know that you and I need to put things to death in us. Thoughts, desires, actions, ways of living. They need to be Dead. They need to be crucified. Today's Christians, the preacher lamented, do not even know how to put sin to death, much less be active in this. And then there's also the positive. After all, we don't just die to sin. We are not only forgiven. We are also new creatures in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is to grow in our lives. And we have a role in cultivating that fruit. And so I put the Word of God as follows. The people of God pursue being godly. We'll look at two things. The foundation and then also the shape of this new life. Now, prior to our text, this is why we have to put things in context too. Verse 3 and 4. First of all, Peter begins by talking about the amazing promises that we do have as believers. I mean, look at the end of verse 4 there. So that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is the promise that we have as believers. And isn't that sort of mind-boggling? We are conceived and born in sin, but now in Jesus Christ, the way is opened up that you and I might even participate in the divine nature? Now, it's in that context that we have the commands of our text. 
And Peter makes it very clear. Look at how he begins verse 5. For this very reason. Because God has made these great promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. For this very reason, get busy. God never makes commands and demands without first making promises. So when God commands things, it's never a sort of, well, it's now up to you to do your part sort of thing. No. Someone noted that in Scripture, God never tells us what to do without first telling us what He has done. You have that even in the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, bondage. In fact, the promises that God makes are demanding in and of themselves. God has made great promises to you. And hopefully as a Christian, you learn to hold on to those promises. But the more you put the promises of God ahead of you, the more they must also compel you. God has promised to renew and transform you. He pours out His Spirit upon you. How can you and I not be motivated then to get busy? There is absolutely no reason for us as Christians to ever sit back and get lazy Perhaps at times you start to coast through life. When it comes to who you are as a person, you might think, well, this is just who I am. You might even get a bit skeptical and cynical. I'm just never going to change. Do not let that pessimism take over. Look at verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's why Peter then continues as he does. So you notice in verse 5, he, Peter doesn't just sort of make suggestions. He doesn't just sort of nudge us. Eh, see what you can do. No, verse 5, for this very reason, make every Effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort. Not just a little bit of effort. That word effort in other places is translated as seriousness. Be serious about yourself growing in godliness. Be serious about all those things that he lists in verse Five and six and seven. Self-control. Be serious about showing brotherly kindness to others. Make every effort to supplement your faith. I have to point out, it's very hard in English to capture the Greek, which is far, far richer. You see, there's first of all a word. The ESV just translated, translated it as Make. Make in English is very bland. It, it means expending 
significant effort. It's used in inscriptions in the ancient world where wealthy benefactors were praised for going above and beyond. You find that sort of thing sometimes. You know, people who donate a large sum of money to charity or others who rally the troops and raise money so maybe like a building is built. That's the kind of effort that you and I are to have when it comes to our walk with God. Apply yourself with all you've got. That's also in the second word. Supplement. That word, too, has some history. The ancient Greeks, you may know, they were not much different than us. They, too, really loved their movies. Well, they had plays. These were usually put on by the city. Wealthy individuals, though, would also pitch in to make these plays possible. In fact, wealthy people even competed and tried to outdo each other in supplying what a, what a play needed. That's the word that's translated as supplement. I mean, there are times in the world where it's like money is no object. Where people go all out with parades and festivals and fireworks, whatever. You and I also need to have that attitude when it comes to our walk with God. To, to be extravagant and, and lavish and generous. There are two extremes that we need to avoid when we consider the Christian life. Two errors. The first is that, well, we get so busy that we forget what God has done. We begin to almost depend upon ourselves for our salvation. We become Pharisees of sorts. There's also the other extreme where we think, well, because God does it all, we have nothing to do at all either. Christians, just we sort of just believe. That's just as dangerous. That's just as in error. We need to hold on to both of those things in a way. We, yes, believe and acknowledge the sovereign grace of God. That it is all of God. But that doesn't mean that we then have nothing to do. The opposite is actually true. God is at work in all things. That means that you and I can and must be at work as well. And at work in hope and in confidence, relying upon the God who is always with us. If you did not believe in sovereign grace, what's the point of even lifting a muscle? We cannot do anything in and of ourselves. But we hold this mystery to be true, that the Lord is at work in all of our working. And therefore we can go to work also in our faith, in our walk with Him, in boldness 
and confidence. It's very hard to underestimate Peter's encouragement here. Sparing no expense in lavishly spending yourself with every effort. You might translate. We know the God who is abundant, who has spared no expense in saving us in Jesus Christ. That same word is used for God Himself earlier. It's also used in verse 11 about the rich welcome that we will receive one day. We need to answer all that our God does and is in kind. You do not give two cents of thankfulness for a million dollar gift. You do not build on a big, massive, elaborate foundation. Just a tiny little shack. You and I need to be involved and engaged with all of our might, with everything we have. This is what stamps our salvation. The God who has richly given us His all in Jesus Christ. Today there's a lot of talk about the importance of being intentional and deliberate. You know, you need to be intentional about things. If you're not intentional, it's not going to happen. If if you're not intentional about your summer vacation, then you're going to probably be staying at home. We need to learn as well to be intentional about growing in our walk with God. Where we set goals. Or we're very conscious. This is what I need to work on. This is the direction that I need to go. And we get busy. Well, that takes us to our second point. A personal trainer might set up a training program personally for you where you work on this, on that. Peter, in a way, does that sort of thing here. He lists a number of qualities that we need to develop in these verses. Now the big question is, when you look at these verses, is is there a particular order or grouping to what Peter lists? It seems very difficult to say, except for this, faith is where it all begins, And also, you can see then in verse 7, where does it all end up? Love. If you do not start with your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's what you're not adding things to, then you'll never learn the rest. But also the direction too, it's all about love. Why are we pursuing all these things that he lists? Like knowledge and self-control and steadfastness. All of that too so that we would grow in love. Now it's worthwhile to go through these one by one. First of all, you can see there in verse 5, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue. Or you could translate it as excellence. It's the same word that he uses in verse 3, which talks about 
God's mighty acts in our salvation. That word excellence, it's the word heroes would use to describe their list of mighty deeds of valor. You know that Samson caught 300 foxes and the Philistine grain fields were burned down. He slew a whole pile of men with a donkey's jawbone. We need to pursue excellence. We live in a world of watching, watching others do great things. Do not let that lull you into a sense of complacency. A Christian, too, wants to do excellent things. Just like someone physically might want to do something awesome. And outstanding. A Christian too has great goals. Strive for excellence in your walk with God. To do things well. To do great things also for God. Next we're to add knowledge. We live in a world that loves to talk about its feelings. A world that doesn't care about the truth. A world that loves to give opinions. Christians want to pursue knowledge. They know. There are lies. They want to know. They want to know the truth about God. They want to know the truth about people. They want to develop insight into circumstances and situations. If someone struggles with addictions, this is what's going on. This is what this person needs, the help they need. This is where my marriage is going to be attacked. Christians want to know what the will of God is in a situation. Find out what pleases the Lord, the Apostle Paul says in a few places. If you learn how to play a sport like hockey, there's, there's knowledge, absolutely. I mean, there's physical ability and skill, but there's also knowledge. Sometimes that knowledge almost happens instinctively. You just sort of know the puck is going to go here. It's probably not there. I know if I pinch here, that's probably going to be bad. The Christian, too, begins to learn to know This is where I'm going to be tempted. This is where we need to sit down and pray over this. We live well, also in our Christian life, the more we know. Then add to that, self-control. The Greek philosopher Socrates thought, Self-control was something that we could learn on our own. If you saw the harm your decisions caused, you would stop doing something. Aristotle, just a few years later, thought this was far too optimistic. And he said rather wistfully, self-control is the divine virtue beyond men. And one look at the world around us. Certainly tells you that is true. 
But with God, all things are possible. Also this. Those who know the Spirit of Christ, they will also know this fruit. The Apostle Paul mentions self-control as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 23. But this is also something we learn as we practice it. You know, in the past, if you read anything about how Christians lived, you'll see that they very much lived a disciplined life where they learned to control their desires, their appetites. They knew it was not healthy to be in the habit of sort of indulging yourself all the time. We can do that so easily. We need to learn to be disciplined. Where you're at a friend's house and you say, I'm only having one beer. Or I'm, no, I'm not having a beer at all. Learn to say no from time to time. Learn to give your desires some resistance. Do not let your anger, your pride, your own desire for comfort take control and dictate what you say. Build some spiritual muscle against these things. Learn to wait upon your God. Learn to seek greater things than the world promises. Next, add steadfastness or perseverance. Be committed. There are times when as a Christian, you are tempted to give in. You and I need to learn to be able to stick with things, stick with people, to go the extra mile. The Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross, we read in Hebrews 12. That's the same word that's used here. He saw the cross as the will of God. Something that he would endure. What are you willing to endure? In your life. You know, half the battle as a Christian is simply, is first of all just to realize that you need to endure things. It is going to be tough in your Christian life. Don't wimp out. I am going to endure that trial, that struggle. I'm going to keep talking with that person despite the fact that this relationship seems to be crumbling, I'm going to stand up for what is right, even though I know it's going to get people angry, I'm going to be mocked. The previous virtue of self-control has a lot to do with resisting pleasure. This adds the opposite. We also need to learn to resist hardship. Then there's godliness, the last one in verse 6 here. Godliness is about being conscious more and more of the presence of God. But you learn to live reverently towards God, and it also shows in how you live towards others that you also live reverently towards them. 
In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, this is what results in people being persecuted. Unbelievers, do not like it when you show in the way that you conduct yourselves, in your actions, that there is a God. And we all answer to Him. Now this word godliness too, is a bit more than just being godly. It has a sense that there are duties and obligations because of your consciousness of God. Righteous responsibilities. There are things that you know you just need to do because you answer to God. Next, brotherly kindness. The second last one here. Philadelphia is the Greek word. This word is, first of all, about families. In families, there's a connection because you're flesh and blood together. In the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, that applies to all of us as the family of faith, as a church. Brotherly kindness. Where we learn to treat each other's others as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, where we acknowledge that they too have a claim upon us. There is an attachment that we have, just like with your physical family. In the church, there's always so much that wants to pull us apart. There's sin and, and weakness that always attacks relationships. There's a devil who loves to destroy, and not just families, but who loves to also destroy the church family. That's the devil's strategy. It's been like that since the beginning, to divide and conquer, to isolate and alienate, and then to overcome. Make every effort to pursue brotherly love. To practice kindness. To treat other believers as your own flesh and blood. To pray over your own heart. That you would see them as that. So that Philadelphia is not just the name then of a city, but the name of a church as well. And the final goal, love, at the end of verse 7. This is the great fruit of a faith that's been watered and tended well. Is this the great goal in your life? To live well is to love well. Work at loving others and loving them better, loving them as God loves them, loving them as Christ would love them. Help those around you taste of the love of God so that they would see how real it is. It is through love that God lives within us and His love is made complete in us. 1 John 4.12 In conclusion, how are you growing in your walk with God? What if we ask somebody close to you, would they say there is growth 
Or are we coasting? Are we lazy? Are we sort of drugged by our wealth and our entertainment? We are all in the process of becoming. Nothing is static. Also with our lives too. But this becoming goes two ways. You are either becoming more and more shaped by your sin, by yourself and your sinful desires, or you are becoming more and more shaped by your God and what He has done in Jesus Christ. What are you turning into? What lifestyle are you pursuing? Notice, though, the program that Peter outlines. Notice he does not give here a list in a Pharisee sort of sense. A list, do these ten things and you will be a Christian. There are other religions in the world that are structured like that. Peter does not have a list. Go out, make sure you give money to this, you help this person. The focus here is on our character, on our heart. That's the great transformation the Christian is busy with. Nothing superficial then, but change deep down. Is that too hard to believe? That we can have new hearts? Look to our Savior. He has come to reveal the heart of our God. And looking to Him in faith, in hope, in worship, our hearts will be renewed to be like His. Amen.